Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. and We invite you to speak to us today. <clears throat> We're grateful for those who come giving testimony of their faith through believer's baptism. And Lord, for those who still need to come, I pray that you draw them by the power of your spirit. And may you receive all the glory and honor that you are due this day. And it's in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray these things. Amen. We're going to start today in Genesis chapter 6, but then we will wind up in Hebrews 11, which is the text that we're studying, that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. We've been looking at uh, great uh, individuals of the faith uh, in what is kind of sometimes called the Hall of Faith. And uh, we've looked at Abel who served and worshipped God. The Bible says that he was faithful uh, through his worship as he brought his act of worship before God, his first fruits. And we talked about that. And then next we see Enoch, we talked about last week, who walked with God. And he was a man who not only worshipped but walked with God daily. And today we're looking at the person of Noah. And the Bible tells us uh, if Enoch was one who walked with God, if Abel was one who worshipped God, the way that the faith of Moses was most demonstrated was through his work for God. I would say that all three of these men, uh, they encompass all three aspects of the faith elements. And what I mean by that is that they believed certainly in their minds and they understood the faith, but they also believed that it was true. And third, they committed themselves to the faith. They committed themselves to the revelation of God. And as we look at Noah today, I know that's a hard one for a lot of folks, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But the Bible clearly lets us know that Noah was a real figure and a real individual. As we see here in the, in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, in chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said, Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with all the earth. Now, we could get into a lot of conversations why that's the case and what's going on. But basically, we could sum it up in this manner. God recognizes that there are none righteous, just like with Sodom and Gomorrah. There are none righteous, save Noah and his family. So he chooses uh, to end life and to basically hit the reset button and start over again and to give the opportunity for God's spirit to reign because they will not repent. We know from other scriptures in the Bible that Noah preaches for 120 years. He preaches a, uh, a message of repentance, but no one hears, no one listens, no one comes. But Noah takes that step, and Noah, by faith, uh, first of all, not only again believes in God, but secondly, is convicted that this is truth, the revelation that God has given him, and is committed to the revelation, the word that God has given him. And for 120 years, he builds an ark in a land that looked like Oklahoma. You know what I mean? It's nowhere close to water, and this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be building an ocean liner uh, in the middle of the land, like the, in the middle of the wilderness. But that's, in fact, 
what he does. And some may say, you know, I just struggle with that fact. I struggle with Noah and, and what it must have been like for him. And how did he get to this point? And what was that like? I think sometimes we like to think, oh, Noah, you know, uh, I'm sure everybody was, I'm sure his whole family was supportive. And this was probably something, I mean, God told him and he got after it. And it was easier back then. I think sometimes we have that disconnect. But I can pretty much promise you it was difficult for Noah. I mean, every day for 120 years. What do you think his family thought? Well, uh, through modern-day technology, uh, I want to give you a picture and just a taste for us to understand what must have been like for Noah and his family. If you would, turn your attention to the screens as we dim the lights at this time. What are you doing? Do we have anything unleavened? Yeah, we do. It's in the back next to the frankincense and myrrh. We have a fancy name for it in this century. It's called pita. Evan, what is happening to you? Don't, no. Put it down. Look at you. The hair, are you on something? Is it a a mega growth hormone? What? Evan, talk to me. I'm building an ark. What does that mean? God appeared to me and told me to build an ark. He said there was going to be a flood and that I should be prepared. Whenever I shave, my beard grows right back out. My hair grows longer every day. This rope, God sent me the robe. Thought it would be funny. I actually think it's really comfortable. That's why I'm wearing it. The beard, the robe, you're Noah? Yeah, kind of. Mom? Not now, Noah! D- Dylan? Hey. Okay. We left everything behind to come here. Maybe that's put too much pressure on you. I don't know. But this has got to stop. Please, you're scaring me. The boys need their father back. And I need my husband back. Must have been pretty hard. You think about Noah, I mean, I I think he's a man that certainly encapsulates the three elements of faith. That he believed, he understood, he was convicted, and he was committed. Biblical faith, that in fact is what it is. But many people still have a hard time believing Noah even existed. Pretty popular to say that he was simply a story, a legend. But let me give you some things to consider because I believe faith is not simply blind faith. That we just jump out and say, I don't want to see any of the evidence, I'm just going to believe. That's kind of lazy, to be honest with you. Really, we want to study the evidence. And as uh, so many great men, C.S. Lewis, Alistair McGrath, who was an atheist, who, matter of fact, Uh, Many of you are familiar with Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist. He went to school. They were at Oxford the same time together, and they were both atheists. And someone challenged uh, Alistair McGrath and said, have you really studied the evidence for God? Have you really scientifically studied? He said, no, I haven't. So he took the challenge, and he said, as I began to study science, it began to reveal to me that there must be a God. And my studies continued, and as I studied the religions, I came to the point to where I recognized Christianity 
had the best answers and gave me the best understanding for why I'm here and how organic matter simply came into matter and how the God of the universe might be trying to communicate with me. Francis Collins, the noted geneticist, says the same thing. He was a staunch atheist. And as he began to study the genes and genetics, he came to the overwhelming conclusion, there must be a God. And at that point, he began to study religions and came to the point to where Christianity, he said, I knew was the only plausible evidence. And he said, you know, I went from simply believing there was God to believing what God said was true. And there's kind of the step of faith right there. C.S. Lewis, uh, who said, you know, I was probably one of the most reluctant converts to ever come into the faith. And C.S. Lewis, he said, as I was studying, he said, I wasn't even for the purpose of finding God. I was just studying science. I was just studying philosophy. Uh, I was just studying nature. And he said, it seemed like God was screaming at me through all avenues. And through a couple of his friends, J.R. Tolkien and others, as, as he said, God was screaming to him. He came to the overwhelming sense that God was who he said he was and that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Great men, great intellects who studied the evidence and came to the point that it was true. Now, why would I believe Noah is true? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Biblically, because Isaiah believed that Noah was true. He believed in the story, and we see that in Isaiah 54.9. Ezekiel, in chapter 14, gives reference to Noah and who Noah was and what he experienced. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 26 through 27, Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until that day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. My friend, I tell you, if the prophets believed, if Peter believed, and certainly if Jesus believed, that right there is enough for me. But if you need a little bit more to consider... And again, we don't have any hard pictures to show you, but there's some evidence that seems to point in the direction that there was a worldwide flood. Now, a lot of questions get asked. You know, as a pastor, I'm often asked, well, all those animals, how did they even, on the boat, how did they even make it? When they get on the boat, how do they survive? And how do you spend that much time on an ark and those animals not kill one another? And how does that all work? Well, we know that most vertebrates can't have the capacity to hibernate. And whether, while we don't know, it is uh, a real possibility. Could, they could have entered, outside of the verge, could have entered into a, uh, a state of hibernation. So however God caused that to happen, we don't know. Uh, but it's not beyond plausibility. Also, are there any other documentations of the flood? Do we have any other evidence? What's interesting, and we've talked about this before, and some skeptics will use this as a reason against the scriptures, but virtually every ancient culture tells the story of a great flood narrative. Now, skeptics would say, see there, the, the Bible just stole that, stole that epic, just stole that story from, from, from other religions. But does it not make more sense, if this is something that really occurred, that multiple cultures would know of it that had nothing to do with each other? If you take the premise that Noah and, and all lineage come from his family, would it not be plausible that through the family and through the different nationalities that would begin, that they would all have told that story? And that's why you see various cultures that are far apart that have a flood narrative as they talk about their ancient 
history. Sociologists say that's how we know that event is credible and that it probably occurred when we see multiple cultures attesting to the event. And then, is, is there any evidence that a flood even ever took place on earth? And certainly there is. Uh, certainly we found sea fossils on tops of mountains. And I remember watching a documentary saying, now how on earth did those, how did those sea creatures, how did those fossils get on top of some of the tallest mountains in the world? How has that occurred? Well, the flood story would give an account for that. It's also interesting, this is a secular article <clears throat> that I read a few weeks ago. And uh, Thomas Ma, uh, who, who gives the information here as a reporter, said that a U.S. archaeologist recently, and this has been several years ago, archaeologists recently found a 7,500-year-old building uh, probably more than 300 feet below the surface of the Black Sea. Uh, Robert, ba- Robert Ballas, who is famous for discovering the Titanic, took the photographs of the structures and recovered some of the artifacts using uh, a small submarine they call the Argus. Uh, The building appears to have been on the beach of the Black Sea, which at the time consisted of fresh water. Now, we know that there were people living there when the flood took place because we're finding evidence of human habitation. Ballard reported uh, that uh, they found indications that the ancient seacoast had branches and debris uh, miles outside of the Black Sea coast. Uh, Ballard, a National Geographic Society explorer and resident, said he has studied the shells and found that the ancient coastlines have two types. One group is an extinct type of freshwater shell, and the other are saltwater shells that date back. Uh, the saltwater shells date back five to six thousand years ago, and the, and the uh, freshwater six to seven thousand years ago. We know that there. And again, this is a secular scientist, he said, we know that there was a sudden dramatic change from freshwater to seawater about 7,000 years ago. Ballard states, and we know that this was the result of a giant flood where most of the known world would have been underwater. Now, he's not trying to defend the Noah story whatsoever, but there's good evidence to point toward a worldwide flood or at a minimum, a flood that covered most of the known earth. So what do we do with that? Well, again, as we talk about the faith, faith development, I think it's plausible to at least for you to consider that Noah was real and that the flood occurred. So much that Isaiah, Ezekiel, and, and Jesus himself and Peter would verify and would state that. Now, as we talk about the faith development process, uh, I want you to recognize that a lot of people have faith. We all exercise faith every day. You know the story in 1911, the great Starline ship company. <clears throat> they had paid to have this magnificent ship built, and one of their executives boasted, this ship, this luxury liner, God himself could not sink it. It is practically unsinkable. And then the next year when it was clear, cleared and On its maiden voyage, the Titanic certainly struck an iceberg and sank. They had so much faith that they didn't even have enough lifeboats on that ship at the time. And while there were over 2,200 people, only about 700 of them lived to get into a lifeboat. It wasn't that they didn't believe that boat had the capacity to take them or the ability to take them. Matter of fact, many believed not only that, I'm safer than on any ship I could ever be on. And yet, their faith was not rewarded with life. They, matter of fact, in fact, experience death. 
You see, it's not enough to have faith. Sometimes people say, well, as long as you have faith, doesn't matter what it's in, doesn't matter who, just as long as you really believe it. Well, they really had faith. They really believed. And you see their faith. You see, real biblical faith is not that you just believe something, but that you believe it's true and that you believe what God is telling you. Okay, and you place your life. And so it has three aspects. Let's talk about them. Martin Luther used Latin terms. We've mentioned this before uh, to define the three aspects of faith. And the first one is notitia. And notitia simply means this. It's understanding. Before we can have faith in anything, before we can come to anything with any real confidence, we must understand what it is, who Jesus is, why he came, why he did what he did. We have to come to an under, a basic understanding. And I would say this is true for all of life. On, any, on most aspects of life, outside of mathematics, we have to first come to an understanding. After we come to an understanding of what it is, then we have to decide, do we really believe it? Is this actually true? We understand it. Now, is it true? And then thirdly, we, uh, and that's called a census, by the way. Not Martin Luther said, notitia would be the understanding. A census would be the belief or the conviction And then fiducia is the trust or the commitment. Then we have to trust or commit. The Bible tells us that we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Now, what does that mean? Some people say, I mean, just jump out there. Don't worry about what you see. Just take a blind leap of faith. That's not what he's talking about at all when Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Not walking by faith, but by sight is this. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, uh, I, I became aware that I need to go in to have some minor surgery. Uh, actually, it was major surgery because it was on me. If it was minor, it would be on you. But uh, for me, <coughs> it was major because it was me, okay? But I have to go in. It's just a day surgery. It's not a big deal. We'll be able to do this in about 10 or 15 minutes. Not a big deal. And so they shared with me, here's the information. And so I did some research, looked at doctors, talked to people, got online, did the whole thing. So I understand what I need. I believe that there's this doctor that I found that can take care of it. And, uh, and now I've got to make the commitment, though, don't I? And uh, what is the commitment like? Well, I tell you what the commitment is, is when you put your credit card down and you go to the doctor's office, that's when you're committed. And you get up on that table, that's when you're committed. Up to that point, you got an understanding, you got a belief, but you hadn't committed. So I come to that place of commitment. So I get myself up on that table, and um, I'm not going to mention where this was because I don't think this was good uh, procedure or good protocol uh, or good etiquette. Uh, but this nurse comes in, and she pulls all these knives out, these sharp instruments right next to me. And I'm looking at those, and I understand what I need. And I believe that this doctor can help me and he can fix this. But all of a sudden, my sight has me wavering. You know what I mean? I'm thinking, for thousands of years, people didn't have these surgeries. And they did just fine. I think I'm going to leave. I I begin to think, I'm just going to get up and walk out. I'm sure I'll be fine. And it's not that I didn't understand. It's not that I didn't believe he could do it. It's because sight, because emotion entered in the equation. I saw something I didn't like and that I didn't think was going to feel good. And I wanted to get out of there. See, walking by faith is not walking by what you see and what you feel and what you sense, but what's true. As we've talked about the last few weeks, as Max Lucado said, faith is not believing that God will give you what you want or do what you want, but believing that God will ultimately do what is best and what is right. That's what real faith is. So... What does that look like for us today? Well, biblical faith always begins with understanding, and it leads to conviction and is completed in commitment. Noah, for 120 years, no converts. For 120 years, no water. 
no blood. But he continues to work. There's a great picture of what it means to walk and to live by faith. Now, let's, let's take you for, for example. Let's personalize this a little bit more. As I mentioned to you before, every one of us go through the faith development process in virtually every area of our lives uh, outside of mathematics. We all use this system. How do you use it? Well, you know what? If you are you are at work and you are your team is getting ready to hire someone, what process do you go through? Well, you look at the resumes, you study it, you first believe there's a need, we have a vacancy or hole that we need to fill here, and then I believe that this person can do it because I've looked at the resumes, I've checked on references, I've interviewed them, I've talked to them, I've studied, and it looks like it's a fit. But when does faith really kind of come into play? When you hire them. And how do you know that it's right? How do you know that it's really true, that this is really right? By looking at resumes? By calling some people that may or may not be related to them? How do you know? You know when you know? is after they get there. That's when you know. That's when you know if this is right or not. Doesn't matter what the grade point average was. Doesn't matter how wonderful they look, how well-spoken they are, what kind of knowledge base they have. None of that matters. You find out when you get there, when they start working with you. And sometimes, you know this, the people who look great on paper, boy, that's, this is not a fit. This is not going to work. Sometimes it does work. But you won't know until you've committed. That's the same picture with our faith. Same way with a relationship. How did you know your spouse uh, or... Uh, Maybe even your girlfriend today. Maybe some of you have a girlfriend today or boyfriend. How do you know? Well, first of all, what do you do? You try to understand who they are. And then maybe you have a passion and a conviction. You know, I think this is right. But how do you really know? You don't. (laughs) God bless you. Aren't you glad you're here today? How, How did you really know this was the one? You didn't. You know how you found out? Is you committed. And that's when you knew. As you begin to live it out. Hey, that's a picture of faith. We want to take, we so desperately as Americans, we want to see all the evidence and we want to be able to prove that this is right before I believe, before I commit. And you don't really get that option. You don't get it when you go to have your car fixed. You don't get it when you go to get food from the grocery. You don't get it anywhere. You go through the process. You look, you examine, you understand, you buy, and you get home, and then you find out, okay, this works, this is good, this is healthy, or it's not. This person that I am with, you know what, this is a fit... Or you start to think maybe it's not, okay? But you go through that faith process. The same is true. This is biblical faith. And that's a picture of how we come to Christ. See, I've talked to a lot of folks who say, you know what? I understand the gospel. I understand that I'm a sinner. I get that. I understand that God is holy. I understand that Jesus came. I understand that. As a matter of fact, I believe it's true. I believe what he said is true, that he is the Son of God. But I'm not ready. I don't want to do that. I want to look at other options. See, that's what the demons did in James chapter 2. They understood, they knew, but they were not committed. They had not trusted. That's the same picture. Some people are unwilling to take the last step. You're not married because you think someone's great. You believe they're great until you make the commitment. And that's the picture. Matter of fact, that's the analogy Jesus gives us is, is the wedding, the bride and the groom. And that's the picture of a faith commitment. You understand, and God wants us to examine the evidence and to study to show ourselves approved. But in the final analysis, you learn as much as you can, and you commit. And that's when God really begins to reveal himself in a deeper and richer manner. You might say today, well, 
How does that work? How does, how does that play itself out? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, a, a lot of people, a lot of people, some people, when tough times come, they take off. They, quote, abandon the faith. And the reason that typically happens, typically it's because of what we just talked about. They understand and they believe it's true, but they've not really committed their life to. And so then when the storms come and God doesn't respond like they think that he should, because their commitment is not to God and his truth and his will, but their commitment is to, God, this is what I want from you. This is what I expect from you. When that comes and those tragedies come and when we get laid off and when bankruptcy occurs and when death occurs, many people go, well, that didn't work. God didn't do what I want him to do. He didn't fulfill his end of the bargain. You see, that's not commitment at all. That was simply a commitment to life the way I wanted it to, to an ideal. I had made a, uh, a idol of how God should be, and he didn't respond. But commitment is even when I don't understand. I'll give you an example of that. Yesterday, right here on this stage, um, we had a funeral. There was a man in our church. Uh, they had been a part, Rich Walker had been at our church uh, for about four or five years in the early years, and they moved to Seattle, and then they had recently moved back. And uh, three children. Matter of fact, it was a, a week ago today that he he died at this time, and um, so began to visit with their family and go through this process. And their daughter Hillary, who came through our youth ministry here, said, uh, "Young girl, twenty twenty one years old, said I I want to give a testimony." She was the oldest, and she said, "I want to give a testimony." So she stood here. And you know what she did? She shared of her faith. She shared of her dad's faith, and she read scripture and she shared the gospel. Why? Because she was committed. She didn't just believe it here. She didn't just think it was true. She had committed to its truth. And notice what I didn't say. I didn't say, and she didn't hurt. She wasn't angry. She didn't have doubts. Sure you do. But in spite of my questions and my doubt, my anger, I believe that God, the same God who is saving, the same God who has given me this loved ones, will take me through the valley of the shadow of death. And I don't have to fear evil. And that one day I will be reunited with those that I love who know Christ. That's the picture. And that's how you stand up on the hardest day of your life and say, I believe. I'm committed to in spite of the circumstances. Why? Because you've already done it. You've already understood. You've already trusted. And you've already committed. And as you begin to live in that type of faith, that type of biblical faith, then you can handle the events of life that most people will cause them to fall apart. Again, did I say you won't hurt? You won't have anger? Nope. But what I did say was you can trust. It's a process. So here's my question to you today. Have you come to the place, first of all, where you believe the truth of the gospel, that you understand you're a sinner and that God is holy, and that we need to be reconciled to him because of our sin. Have you come to the place where you believe that is true? You were convicted that is true. And lastly, have you committed yourself? Have you put your trust and hope in him? And say, God, I commit to you. In spite of the circumstances of life, in spite of what I don't understand, in spite of how I would do things differently, Lord, I put my commitment in you.
So when questions come up I can't answer, when life I will trust you. I will study. I will do everything I can to learn. But ultimately, my faith rests in the person of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Have you done that? If not, I want to invite you to do that today. Let's pray together. If you're here this morning and you've never fully committed your life by faith to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do this. To just say, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I need you. And I recognize I cannot do it myself. I cannot be good enough on my own. So I put my trust and faith in you today. And Lord, uh, I ask you to come in and to save me. I put my faith. I understand. I believe. But now I'm committing I'm committing with my time, talents, and resources. I'm committing with my belief system, God, that though you slay me like Job, I will still trust you. I will still say, I believe, because I am committed to you, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for saving me. Come into my life and be my Savior.